You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, today I'm really excited to begin a new teaching series in the Old Testament book of Ruth. Are you familiar with the book of Ruth in the Old Testament? Uh, On one level, very simply, it tells the story of two widows, a young woman named Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, and it tells us of their plight for survival in the ancient Near East. That's, That's what the book of Ruth is on one level, but on a whole other level, it's a God-given account of his, the greatness of his power, the greatness of his faithfulness, of his goodness, even in and through life's bitterness. It's the book of Ruth. It's a very short book. It's only four chapters. It's also, I mean, it's in the Old Testament, so this may sound obvious, but I just want to say it. It's a very old book. I mean, it, it's about 3,000 years old. Think of it this way. The book of Ruth was old when Jesus walked the earth. So how much older is it now? And you hear about a book that's short, uh, about two widows in the ancient Near East, a book that's 3,000 years old. You might wonder, well, what, what, what relevance would this have to me and to my life now? Well, much, much relevant. It's, it's incredibly relevant, mainly because it's given to us by God. You know, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God, or all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, that tells us something about the nature of God's Word from Genesis through Revelation. Just as I am speaking to you right now, as I speak words to you, I do it by exhaling. I breathe out words. So I'm speaking to you words coming from me. But when you read the Bible, what does Paul tell us about the the nature of Scripture? He said, well, Scripture is God-breathed. In other words, it comes from him. So yes, he uses human, he used human authors, but ultimately and truly the, the scriptures, the Bible, including the book of Ruth, comes from him, and therefore it's relevant. And Paul says it's all scriptures God breathed and it's profitable. So it's it's good for you, it will do you good. It's profitable, profitable for teaching, for reproof and for correction, and for training and righteousness. Anybody here need some instruction? Like, need some wisdom for your life? Anybody here maybe need some reproof and correction? You may not want it, but anybody need it? Anybody need equipping to live this life by faith in Jesus? Well, that's what the Scripture's for. That's what all the Scripture's for. That's what the book of Ruth is for. And so, on that basis, I can tell you, it's a very relevant book. But even when you look at the content itself of what it addresses, it teaches us a lot of vitally important and very relevant things. It teaches us about trouble and tragedy. Like, like where is God when your world gets turned, gets turned upside down? Well, Ruth addresses that. It teaches us about love. You know, one of the realities about the book of Ruth is it's a love story. It's an incredible love story. And uh, where we meet this woman named Ruth and this man, I mean, he is a man, Boaz. Like next to Jesus, Boaz, who we're going to meet later in Ruth, he is the man. And uh, I'm just, he's one of my heroes in the Bible. We're going to meet, we're going to see what what romantic, godly, romantic love looks like. We're going to learn about courage and risk-taking faith. And God shows us the beauty of, something of the beauty of holiness, when it emerges in our lives. The book of Ruth teaches us about God's heart for the nations. And 
uh, his passion, his passion and his pleasure in doing in and through people, very unlikely people, great things. God loves to do great things through unlikely people. And we see that in the book of Ruth. We're going to learn about God's faithfulness, God's kindness, and his providential power in all things. Especially, we'll see that God is good. We'll learn about the goodness of God, even in life's bitterness. And that's actually what I've called this series, Experiencing God, Experiencing God's Goodness in Life's Bitterness, a study of the book of Ruth. I'd love for you to find that book and turn there with me to the book of Ruth. It's in the Old Testament. It's early on in the Bible. If, if you don't have a Bible with you, just reach out in front of you. Under the chairs in front of you, you'll probably see a Bible nearby. Just reach out and grab that and turn to the book of Ruth. It's early on in, in the Old Testament, Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. All right? It's in there early on. If you get the Psalms or Revelation, went too far. Go backward. Use the table of contents. That is what it is there for. And just find this little awesome book of Ruth. Now, the, we've said the ultimate author of this book is God, and that is true. The human author, we're, we're really not sure who the human author is. Traditionally, it was thought to be Samuel. Uh, that seems uh, highly unlikely. The, the date of the book, though, we're pretty certain was in the time of David, uh, after David had become king in Israel. In fact, one, one of the purposes that the author appears to have is in writing Ruth is to affirm God's divine provision for Israel of giving them David as king and showing how God had worked in history to bring about the birth and then the reign of King David. It is set in the time of the judges. Now, the reason that's significant is because it helps you to understand something of the broader context of the times. If you know anything about the, the time of the judges recorded in the book of Judges in the Bible, right before Ruth, you'll know it was a season in Israel's history marked by a lot of disappointment and a lot of grief because the people were in a pattern of keeping on disobeying God. In fact, they would rebel against God. They would disobey God, the nation of Israel, God's people. They would, they would uh, be unfaithful to him. And then God would discipline them. And then they would cry out to God for mercy. And God would raise up judges who were not, not judges who sit at benches with gavels, but like warrior rulers who would come and be used of God to rescue the people from their troubles. And then they'd turn around and do it all over again. Forget about God, disobey him. And it's this pattern of, of disobedience, disaster, deliverance all through the book of Judges for 300 years. Now you say, I thought this was in Ruth. Yeah, the book of Ruth is set in that time. So if ever you're reading the book of Judges, you know the story of Ruth happens somewhere in that 300-year history. It's a time when the, the people's behavior is marked by, Judges 21 and 25 says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That was the mantra, that was the attitude of the times. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like maybe it could apply to another time in history? Everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. You see the relevance of a book like this written for people like you and me. Yet it's in the middle of this season that we have this remarkable story of love and redemption and a doggedly persistent God who is good. Ruth 1 Verses 1 to 5. 
sets the scene for the story. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, do you see the context? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites, try and say that uh, three times fast, Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These, her sons, these took Moabite wives, and the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Mahlon and Kilion died, so that the woman, that's Naomi, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Loved ones, the reality is, is that that's, that's all it takes for your life to get flipped completely upside down. About five verses. About five verses is all it takes for things to go from bad to worse, to worse still. I think it's important for us to uh, recognize that even in this introduction here, there is important instruction and perspective for you and I to lay hold of. The reality is that sometimes life does go from bad to worse. And that happens even to godly people. I just want to put a family tree up here so you can get your mind around who the people are that we're reading about. We've got Elimelech and Naomi. We have their sons, Mahlon and Kilion. You want to say that? Mahlon? Say that. Go for it. Mahlon. Yeah, you got to get a little guttural, though, if you're going to do it real, okay? You could say Mahlon, but that's no. That's Mahlon and Kilion. Not Chilion. Kilion. And then their wives. We've got Ruth and Orpah. Just, just a little aside, just for fun. Orpah. You've heard of Oprah Winfrey? You've heard of her? Okay, she was named after Orpah. They just reversed the P and the R. I'm not making that up. It's true. It's true. Seriously, that's, she was named after Orpah from the book of Ruth. Now, don't get too attached to the people in this family tree because, as you can see, most of them are gone pretty quick out of this story, and we're left really with two as the story proceeds. But these people, any one of these people can tell you what I just told you. Sometimes life goes from bad to worse. That happens even to righteous people. And it doesn't mean that God is not in control. In fact, we see in the book of Ruth that God is emphatically very much in control. It also doesn't mean that God doesn't care. Because he does care immensely. But what we see is that, while it's true that sometimes life goes from bad to worse, that is part of God's providence in our lives. It's in his providence, in his purposeful sovereignty in his providence, that his people will go through hardship. And we see this all through Scripture and all through church history, too. But all through Scripture. Think about Psalm 39 and 14. It says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Acts 14, 22, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I mean, thumbs up for entering the kingdom of God, right? But it's through many tribulations 
First Peter 4, 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Philippians 1 and 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I mean, look at these verses. We've got glory in them, but also sorrow and grief. I mean, look, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many. So if you are facing afflictions today, that is, that's not unusual for the people of God to face that. It's common. In fact, we see in Scripture it's to be expected in all different shapes and sizes. Sometimes it's satanic opposition, persecution. Sometimes it's circumstantial. It could be health. It could be financial. It could be relational. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. So that's wonderful. We've got this, this assurance of deliverance, but also with it, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Acts 14.22, it was wonderful to enter the kingdom of God, but it's through many tribulations. That's the path. It's a hard path. It's a difficult path. Praise God, there's the kingdom of God. Praise God, there's welcome. Praise God, there's hope there. But it's through many tribulations. 1 Peter 4.19, let those who suffer, notice it's according to God's will. You see, you can be going from bad to worse in your life. And the thing is, is that you very well may be smack dab right in the middle of God's plan and his purposes for you. And we're not making this up. We're not just trying to make you feel better. It's true that he ordains these things, that those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls, notice, to a faithful creator. So we've got a faithful creator. So we've got sorrows, we've got suffering, but we've also got a faithful creator. First, Philippians 1 and 29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, I love that, like just camp on that for just, just a couple seconds. It's been granted to us to believe. Isn't that an awesome gift? To believe, to believe savingly, to have Jesus, to know him. You're trusting in Jesus today, dear Christian, because somehow, someway, in God's great grace, he has granted it to you to believe. What a gift. But along with that gift, though, is also this. He's granted us to not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's not unusual for God's people for the righteous to find in their life that sometimes things do go from bad to even worse. And that's the story. That's part of the testimony that we're greeted with when we read, we read the book of Ruth. From verses 1 to 5, Naomi's situation goes from bad to worse. It starts bad. You notice that in verse 1? It starts out really bad. What was the first thing we're told about their context? Well, after we learn it was the days of the judges... It says there was a famine in the land. You see that verse one? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. It's, it's interesting. They live in Bethlehem, which means house of bread or house of food. And yet in Naomi's day, it was a house without food. There was a, there was a, a famine. And we don't know what, what was the cause of the famine. Was it God's divine judgment against his people? Was it one of those seasons where the people rebelled and this is what God was disciplining them and, and about to bring about deliverance? It, it, it may be, but we're not told. We're not told what the situation was. And of course, the reality is many of the troubles we encounter in our lives do not come with explanations. We like explanations. We, we sometimes think if we had one, it'd be easier to deal with. But have you noticed 
that many times God is just not into explaining himself? The reality is that sometimes we encounter, we encounter situations where our troubles remain a mystery. And we, we, we never really know necessarily what to, to make of them. And for this family, this was a terrible situation they were in. And, and, and the author doesn't care to tell us why there was a famine. Just says that there was. Things were, were bad. And then, and then the pressure of what to do about this. It says in verse 1 that they made this decision to sojourn or to travel to the country of Moab. Now that's a big deal, isn't it? Some of you know what it is to sojourn from one place to another, to, to emigrate away from your home to another place. And that's, that's a big deal. I mean, everything changes. Not only your geography, but your whole community. And you, you enter into a world that is just so different in, in so many ways, ways you hadn't even thought of, where you, you go from one place to another and there's the distance and there's the missing of home and community and now you're in a new place and they went through. Can you imagine how agonizing of a decision this must have been for them personally? How about theologically too? Because here they are, they're in Israel, they're in the promised land. It was a place where in the days of Moses it was, it was said that it was going to be a land of milk and honey and yet here in this season it was a land of barrenness. And, and no food. And can you imagine the wrestling they would have? They probably wrestled with, is it even right for us to leave Israel to go to a foreign land, Moab? Is it sinful for us? You know, there's some, there's some Bible students that will argue quite adamantly that the move from Bethlehem over to Moab was a sinful decision. Now, I'm not sure about that. The author here doesn't weigh in and weigh, lay judgment. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I would say if it was, though, we'll see by the end of the book of Ruth, that only highlights even more the greatness of God's grace. Because we'll see in the end, God has actually, even though it was a bitter experience, we'll see in the end, God worked mightily and graciously. So one pastor put it this way, don't ever think that the sin of your past means there's no hope for your future. Maybe you have made some sinful choices in your life. But if you are in Jesus... You are not defined by sinful choices in your past when you're trusting in him. But here's the deal, though. Do you ask me, do I think they're sinning? I don't know. And sometimes it's hard to know sometimes when you're making big decisions. Like, there's, there's no clear chapter and verse here on what we're to do. But I can sure sympathize. Here they are in Bethlehem. They got no food. And as my, my, now my geography in the ancient Near East is pretty sketchy. But my understanding is is that Moab's about 50, about 50 miles away on, on, tall, on tall hills. My, my understanding is that certain places in Bethlehem, you could see Moab. And there they are in this barrenness, and they look at way, way off in the distance, the other side of the, of the Dead Sea. They can see there's, there's lushness there. There's life, there's produce. So here we are here. Are we going to eat? Or what, what are we going to do? And come out to the agony, and what's right to... Finally, they make the decision to go. And they get there, and they start trying to make a go. Things are bad. But, I mean, they're not going to get worse, are they? Well, sure they did. You saw. You saw what happened. Things go from bad to worse when Elimelech dies. He just dies. And it's almost like, it's almost like the author here is, is almost heartless in the reporting. Right? It just, it just sort of lays it on us. It's a desperate situation. Then verse 3, he says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. That's it. No explanation, no, no storytelling about the cause, no, just he died. So abrupt. That's how you, tragedy and 
hardship usually shows up in our lives, isn't it? All of a sudden, unannounced, here it is. I remember one time finding out, I, was, I have a particular family member I was very close to, and uh, one day we were just at home, and I, I think we even had people over, I can't remember, and all of a sudden my phone just went buzz, buzz in my pocket, and I pulled it out, and there was a text message saying that he died suddenly. Just as an aside, I would just say, if you can make the phone call, it would be better than the text, I would just say. But whether it was a phone call or showing up on my door or a text message, it's the same reality. All of a sudden, there it is, he's gone. That's the way it happens. Accidents just appear. They don't happen in slow motion. They just happen. A diagnosis, death, things go from bad to worse just like that. And I think the author reminds us of that and brings us into that reality. Elimelech, he died. And now Naomi, she's in this situation where she's a widow. All of a sudden, she's a widow. And she's left, verse 3 says, left with her two sons. Well, at least they're there, right? I mean, at least she's got her boys. And here she is in this season of life. Implicitly, it seems she's getting more advanced in years. And while her husband is gone, she's still got her sons. And then, and then there's a glimmer of hope because the sons marry. There's, there's two weddings. So yeah, there's a funeral, but now we've got two weddings, right? So, so one hard thing, now, now two good things. And, and they're, they're, her sons marry. And, and sure, she probably had some, some grief and some mixed feelings about the fact that they married Moabite women. I mean, after all, no Jewish women in antiquity would have entertained her sons marrying Gentile men. But again, there's no comment on that here. It's just the fact that they, they married. And I'm sure that Naomi drew comfort from that and even hope from that. Because while her husband was gone, now she's She's got sons who are married and the sons, and this was so important in antiquity, now these sons can possibly carry on the family name. And to comfort, there's people around, and it's, she missed her husband. But at least there's hope. Machlan and Kilion, I have them. Until she didn't. Because it goes from bad to worse sometimes, and then worse still. We're reading verse 4, it says that they lived about they lived there about 10 years. These, these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Just as an aside here, what do you think she's expecting during the course of these 10 years? Grandma, what's she expecting? Grandchildren, right? That's what she's, she's looking for. And I'm sure she was tactful and no unneeded, no unnecessary pressure and like that. Probably lots of prayers, probably lots of hoping. A year goes by, three years goes by, five years goes by. There's waiting and trusting in God and seven years go, 10 years. And no regret, but still, you know what? There's always tomorrow. There's always, and then there isn't. And then we read that both Mahlon and Kilion died. Verse five, and both Mahlon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her, son, her two sons and her husband. It's, it's the unthinkable situation. It goes from bad to worse to worse still. She was at rock bottom, and then bottom gave way. And here she is in this situation, which is, on one hand, just grief upon grief upon grief. Yeah, there's two weddings, but now three funerals. And what's, what's more is not only is she grieving and without her precious loved ones, but she's also in antiquity. She is in a very precarious situation. See, in those times, in this culture, 
there was, no, there was no opportunity for Naomi to go to the local community college and kind of retool herself for her next, the next chapter in her life. No, the reality is, is that it was a world in which if you did not have a man in your life, a husband, a father, as a woman, as this widowed woman, she was looking and staring down into a bleak, destitute future marked by poverty and labor until the day she died. It is that sad. There's no government assistance programs. She is looking at abject poverty. And she doesn't have her sons to comfort her. She'd say later in verse 13 of this chapter, she told her daughters-in-law, she said, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. God, this sovereign God, this great God, his hand has gone against me and it's exceedingly bitter for me. She says in verse 20, the same chapter, that the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. She describes in verse 21 the fact that she was once full, but now she is empty. Naomi's at rock bottom, seeing no way out. She feels it and knows it. But here's a principle I want you to get for your life. It ain't over until God says it's over. It ain't over until God says it's over. God is often the forgotten factor in the midst of our troubles. Now, I will be quick to say, Naomi was not guilty of that. She never forgot God. She wasn't happy with God. She was angry with God. And she perceived God to be against her. But she saw God very much in this picture, which I would take, I would take any day of the week over and above the practical atheism that's so prevalent in our time. God is often the forgotten factor in so many of our troubles, but God is the decisive factor in the story of Naomi and Ruth. And at the risk of spoiling the book of Ruth and the story, at the risk of that, I have to show you a contrast from the beginning where we are to the end. Okay, so, so spoiler alert. I, I'm going to kind of spoil the end of the story, but many of you already know it anyway. But you, you got to see this. you, you got to get this. In Ruth chapter 1 and verse 5, as far as Naomi is concerned, her situation is utterly hopeless. She's got no husband. She's implicitly at an age where even if she wants to remarry, she's not, able to, she's not going to have children. Her two sons, who were married for a decade, never had children. They are gone. She's looking at a hopeless, bleak future. As far as she's concerned, it's just game over. It's just survive and survive, and then I'll die. But, sorry, that was a little loud. This is so big, though. When you get to the end of the book of Ruth, where at the beginning of this first scene, we find Ruth grieving and hopeless. At the end of the book of Ruth, we find her cradling her grandson, who would be the grandfather of the greatest king Israel ever had, King David, who many, many years later would have a descendant, you may have heard of him, named Jesus, who saved the world from their sins. It ain't over until God says it's over. You say, well, how did she get? How did she get from hopeless and destitute to being like the great-grandmother of the king of Israel and being an ancestor to King Jesus? Well, that's the story of Ruth. And that's the story of your faithful God who does crazy great things just when it looks like it's impossible. He comes through 
Naomi presumes here in chapter one that her life is basically over, but in a short time, in a very short time, she will see God has worked mightily. Now, now to some teaching. I want you to apply a couple of things to your life here. It's a couple of things I think you need to know and believe. When life goes from bad to worse, there's worse from life goes from bad to worse, there's two truths at least that you need to know. Number one, God is always at work, even in the worst times. God is always at work, even in the worst times, even when you don't see it, even when you don't feel it, even when you're doubting it, even when you can't fathom how or where, he's always at work, even in the worst of times. He, he never slumbers or sleeps. Did you know that? Like he never, God never dozes off. I doze off sometimes. Perhaps you doze off too in front of the TV at night maybe. Reading, reading a good book not good enough to keep you awake. We slumber or sleep because we have to. We're, we're limited, but God never does. You know what else God never does? He never takes vacation. Never takes vacation. Now the Bible says, and, and when he created the world on the seventh day, he rested. Okay, but don't picture right, God on the beach, right? Just have, I, I gotta go lay down. No, he rested, he paused his work. But he doesn't go on vacation. He's always at work. Always working. Even in the worst of times. You and I, we need breaks. We need God is not like that. His hand is always on everything. His hand is on the big things and even the small things. And nothing escapes his notice. He, he cares for nations. He cares for communities. He cares for families. He cares for widows. He cares for little ones. He's always at work, always attentive, always doing. Jesus said this. He said, Matthew 10 and 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Think about that. I mean, if, if you ever wanted to test somebody, like, how well do you know me? And they say, well, I know the number of hairs in your head. I mean, that would be pretty impressive, right? Like, well, okay, yeah, that's, that's some kind of knowledge. You might say it's a little weird, but impressive nonetheless. I mean, if somebody knows the number of hairs in your head, they know you very, very well. Granted, for some of us, that would be easier to track than others. But the reality is that's pretty impressive. Your father knows the number of hairs in your head. What's the, what's the implication there? He knows you. He knows all about you and cares for you. Don't forget that, loved one. Don't forget that. Sometimes we, we think that he doesn't notice me. He may notice other people. He doesn't notice me. He notices you. And he's always working. Always. Around you. In you. Dear brother, dear sister, through you. Even in the worst of times. Don't overlook God's goodness in the small things. You know, Naomi, she suffered huge loss. Let's just be real. Huge loss. But she also still had, she still had many things going for her, many provisions. I mean, she's going to find out that she's got Ruth. And we'll see, again, at risk of spoiling the story, she's going to find out that Ruth is a rock star. I mean, I don't want to belittle anybody else that we've met already in this story, but let's just call a spade a spade. When you get to see what this Ruth is like, you see like one Ruth is worth 10 other people. 
She's amazing. She's, Naomi, in this point in time, is grieving and looking from her perspective into a hopeless future, feeling like she has nothing. But if she would turn to one side of her, she would see she's got something and more than something. She's got Ruth. Later, she's going to get Boaz. And Boaz, like I've already said, I think Boaz is a pretty cool dude. He is the man. He's the manliest man you'll ever meet, aside from Jesus. It's Boaz, and she's got Boaz coming. She's going to have a, a little baby that she couldn't ever fathom would come into her family. She's going to have neighbors and community again who are not only going to be around her, but rejoicing in God's goodness to her. And by the way, she's also got God, which is what you've got going for you too. You've got God. So yes, you've got hard things, but you've got God and the blessings that he gives you along the way. I think one of my, without question, my favorite Old Testament Bible commentator is a man named Dale Ralph Davis. And um, I got this quote from him this week. I want to share it with you. Here's the quote. You ready? Quote is this. I have garbage. Ergo, God is good. In other words, I have garbage. Therefore, God is good. Davis argues this way. He says, when you think about living in the West... And how often, for us here in Niagara, it's every other week, wheeling the trash out to the curb, taking it out there, or lugging the garbage bags out there. It's not a very glorious job. In fact, all that's in it is not very glorious at all. It smells, it's stinky, it's, it's waste, it's stuff that's got to go. It's kind of ugly and dirty, and it's, it's time for it to go away. But Davis argues this. He says, as Christians, we can't engage in an activity like that for us 26 nights in the year. We can't engage in an activity of that without thinking theologically about garbage. And if you think theologically about garbage, you realize that there's more than one side of this garbage issue. There's the smelly, rotting waste that needs to go away. But there's also the fact that you have garbage. And the fact that you have garbage is a signal, is a reminder of the fact that God has provided for you. Because without the provision, without the groceries, without the clothing, without the new whatever set it is that you bought, you wouldn't have the garbage. And by the way, the more people that are around, the more garbage you have. So as you're taking your garbage out to the street, you think theologically about these things and you realize there are bitter things, there are ugly things in this world that I have that come from the hand of God, some of them. But I also have blessings that come along with it, like the provisions in the first place, like the faith to keep going. It's amazing, isn't it? Some of you are still here. Like, I mean, here in church, here trusting Jesus. Where did that come from? Yeah, you've got some weight. You've got some huge challenges. Some of you have crises in your life right now, but you're also still believing. That's God's provision for you. You're believing because he's at work in you. You've got promises. Some of you, that's how you got out of bed this morning. It wasn't the alarm that got you up. It was a promise from the Lord that he'll never leave you or forsake you. And so you got out of bed today trusting him for that. And you're going to go in tomorrow banking on his word. You've got the spirit of God dwelling in you. You've got a church family around you. You see, you've got, yeah, you've got garbage, stinkiness, bitterness. There's hard things, but you've also got good things. And these come from God. It's a reminder that even in our sufferings, God gives us means of easing our sufferings and our sorrows. He's always at work, always, even in the worst of times. And notice verse 6. 
I stopped short of this, but notice verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. For a season, God closed his hand and withheld, but now he's opened his hand and given. And we might not think a whole lot about, about food and a barley harvest to come, but that's because we don't deal much in famine. But this is a big deal for Ruth. God is for, for Naomi and then Ruth. God is providing. It may seem small, but it's not nothing. Don't overlook the not nothing. He's at work even in the worst times. That's the first thing. Second thing, when life goes from bad to worse, another truth you need to know and remember is this, is that the end of the matter is better than its beginning. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Now that's a direct quote from Ecclesiastes 7 and 8, which says the end of a matter is better than its beginning. In Christ, we are promised the happiest of endings. Wrongs we made right, tears we wiped away. We have eternal life with Jesus in heaven. We spent some time talking about that recently. In Christ, we are, the Bible says, we are more than conquerors. So we have victory, victory over the devil, victory over sin, victory over our flesh, victory even over our circumstances. We are, we, are, we are conquerors, but the Bible says, Paul says in Romans, that we are more than conquerors. God, in his great providence, is able to take the sorrows and the struggles and the challenges we have and not only give us victory over them, but then use those things to do good to us, like build our faith. And strengthen our commitment in Christ and increase our hope. You're going to get through what you're going through, not because you'll come up with some ingenious way around it, and not because you have some kind of special inherent resiliency, but because God is with you and he will carry you and he has his hand upon you, even to do good. The end of a matter is better than its beginning because God is a storyteller, and that's how his story ends. It's going to be good. God's word promises that, us that, that he does indeed work together all things for the good of those who love him. I remember just writing, preparing my message. I remember um, one time meeting a man. Actually, we did some, we had a, in my doctoral studies, we had a class together. And in one of our class sessions, he gave a presentation talking about things that he had learned, uh, many of them the hard way, about leading his church through change. And uh, he told the story. Much of, his, much of his presentations were about mistakes he made and things that he would do differently. But a significant part of his story was actually relaying to us the very, very painful experience he had along the way of facing significant opposition, even brutal opposition, from people in his own church. He explained that he had been the pastor of this church for over 25 years, but had come to a place of seeing very, very clearly in Scripture that there were some things that they were doing, some practices that they had in the church that were clearly contrary to what God's Word said. And so he really believed by conviction, we, we need to come in line with what the Scripture says. And so he embarked on bringing about some meaningful and significant change to have their practices accord with God's Word. But you know 
that, I mean, in any group of people, sometimes change doesn't go well, and it turns out sometimes even in church. And it was one thing that people were against some of the changes, but the brutal part of it was that he got attacked because of the changes, got attacked personally, and that was one thing. But what was worse is even his family was attacked and verbally maligned, even his children. And can you imagine, just, just a horrific experience for him, a very, very painful experience. And at a certain point, under the pressure of all this and the opposition, and you know, just beginning to wonder, like, like where is this going? What am I going to do? Is this even worth it? He spent some time, he was having his morning devotions, and his reading that day was from the book of Ecclesiastes. And he said, and I came to Ecclesiastes 7, verse 8, and read that verse. And the verse said, the end of the matter is better than its beginning. And he's like, I just knew that that day the Lord gave me that word. And I knew we were going to get through this. And God got him through it. And he's going to get you through it too. The end of the matter is better than its beginning. You need to remember that. He's always at work, even in the worst of times. And the end of a matter, if you're in Jesus, is better than the beginning. Yes, it may go from bad to worse, and worse still. But in Jesus, we know there's a resurrection coming. And with that resurrection, heaven is coming. And so we know that we know that the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Now, I want to leave you with one more thing, what I'll just call a pastoral appeal, based on this, what we're seeing here. What I mean by that, just, just from the heart of your pastor, one appeal, one plea I would have with you in response to what we've seen here. That's this. When you can't trace God's hand, trust his heart. When you can't trace God's hand, like when you can't, when you can't make sense of what God is doing and why he's doing it and where this is going, when you can't trace God's hand, my appeal to you is to trust his heart. I want to read to you a quote here from Spurgeon. I read something of Spurgeon just about every day. I read my Bible more than Spurgeon, but I think he's probably the second in terms of what I frequently read. And you can tell by the language, he's, he's long dead now, but I want to read you this quote. The worldling, that's the word, you know, the worldling blesses God while he, while God gives him plenty. But notice, the Christian blesses him even when, he, even when God smites him. He believes, now this is faith. You say, you know, we, we encourage each other in faith to keep trusting. Well, what does that mean? Here it is. This is it. This is faith. He believes God to be too wise to err and too good to be unkind. He trusts him where he cannot trace him looks up to him in the darkest hour and believes that all is well. Not because all is well, but because when I see him and I know that God is God and God is good, all is well. See, now this is faith. So I accept the fact that there are times when things go from bad to worse. And that's not because God's not in control. It's not because God doesn't care. It doesn't even mean that God's against me. But what it means, what we're reminded of in Scripture is that God in his providence calls us many times again and again to go through difficult seasons for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which is for the greatness of his glory. But even when we don't see that, what I'm calling you to is when you can't make sense of him, trust him anyway. Trust his heart. What do you know about his heart? Spurgeon reminds us, like, well, I know he's too wise to make a mistake. 
So my conclusion is not that God has, has had an accident here. I mean, God never says, oops. I say oops all the time. I got a lot of oopses in my life. And you probably do too. God, he never says, oh, rats, I forgot. No, never. He's too wise to err and too good to be unkind. So let me ask you, dear Christian, when you can't trace his hand, when you can't make sense of what he's doing and why, what do you know about his heart? What do you know about him? Well, that he's good. I know that he guarantees that he will somehow, some way, work together everything for my good. Now, I can't see that. I, I can't fathom how that would be possible. But I know his heart. I know he's faithful. I know he keeps his promises. I know that salvation is sure. I know that he'll never leave me or forsake me. I know that about him. I know that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. So he, he's not going to abandon me. He's not going to leave me here. This isn't going to be the end of the story. That's God's heart. And that's the call to faith, to trust him. So what is he doing here in your situation, in your illness, in your layoff, in your disappointment, in your diagnosis, in your relational trouble, in the opposition you're facing, in the family pain? What's he doing? I don't know. I know he's working. But when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. When you can't make sense of it, look to him and who he is. Trust his character and his person. At the end of 1 verse 5 here, Naomi, as far as she can see, God's nowhere to be found. But by the end of the book, it's undeniable that he was there all the time. And by the end of your book, you'll have seen the same thing too. I'll leave you with this story. Um, back when I was maybe in my early, I guess mid-20s, early mid-20s, um, I was having a, I guess a bit, you might call it a little an internal crisis. I was really wrestling with some theological issues and really trying to reconcile, and maybe you've had this experience too, really wrestling to reconcile the fact that we live in a world that is so broken and so unjust and there's so much pain and so much sorrow and so much suffering. And so I can see that, but I also believe in a God who is great and merciful and good and trying to reconcile those things and trying to, trying to come to terms with what I understood about God and his character, his person, with what I was seeing happening in the world around me. And really wrestling with this, and it was a really formative time in my life. And I had a, we had a friend over, and this friend has, a, has, a, has quite a story in his own life. But, but part of his story is a horrific season in his life when he was a child, when he was repeatedly, awfully, physically and sexually abused, even by family members. Even to this day, he still bear, his body still bears the scars of the abuse that he suffered when he was a child. And one night, he was at our place, and I don't know, we were having a meal together or something, sitting at our old rickety kitchen table that we used to have. And, and at a certain point, I just began to open up with him and share with him some of what I've been wrestling with. He's older than me and more mature in Christ than me, for sure. And so I just started to share. But then I was coming up to it. I wanted to ask him something. And I finally came to the place where I just, just went ahead and asked it. I told him, I said, you know, I'm really wrestling with this whole issue of sin, of, of sorrow and suffering and misery in this world and this God who is great and good. I'm trying to reconcile it. I want to ask you this. How do you reconcile it? How do you put it together with all that you've been through? What do you do with that? 
How, how do you put together this God who you love and follow and worship, who's great and awesome and power and merciful, with the abuse you've suffered and the horrors you've been through? He thought for a minute. He said, well, for one thing, I never, ever want to go through it ever again. I can tell you that. But then he said this. He said, here's what I do with it. He said, I look ahead to the day when I will be with Jesus, and I will be. And I believe that when I get to that day, when I'm in heaven and I'm with the Lord, the reasons God had for allowing me to go through all that I went through will be made plain. And then he said, but even if I never do understand, I'm confident there's coming a day when to me, it won't matter anymore. I thought about that. And I reflect on the story here of Naomi and Ruth and where we're going in this book and maybe where you are in your life. Yeah, it's true that things may be going from bad to worse. I'm not saying what you're going through doesn't matter. To the contrary, it matters immensely to God. But what we're reminded of and what we see in this account is that we have a God who, yes, there is much mystery, but whose heart is good and his plans are sure and his promises unbreakable. And it may be that what you're going through will remain a mystery for the rest of your life. But there's coming a day when that mystery will be a distant memory and you'll be with Jesus and you will see the end of the matter is far better than its beginning. Let's pray together.